Welcome back to Voices from Healthcare. Every other week, I seek to paint healthcare in vivid color as I learn more about the human side of medicine. In this episode of Voices from Healthcare. You know, some of my hardest decisions, I'll just say, have been cases where there's not a clear-cut answer. There's a medication with potential risks, but also potential benefits. And how do I, in a situation, how can I best discern the risk versus benefit of that medication? And that's probably the most common kind of dilemma I feel myself in, in certain times with, within my role. You know, this medication, I know the risks, I know the side effects, but I also know what we would want to do if we were to use this medication, the benefit the patient might get. So how do I, how do those things merge, you know? You sometimes feel like you're in between a rock and a hard place where a patient needs something, but maybe they can't have something. So how, where's the middle ground and kind of navigating to find the best option for the patient? Those I think are probably the hardest decisions um, where there's no good answer, but you ultimately have to make a decision. Welcome back to another episode. Today we explore the fascinating aspect of clinical pharmacy and its role on surgery. We explore the importance of research within the hospital and delve into the technical aspects of pharmacological drugs. Dr. Philpott is a clinical pharmacist specializing in surgery, trauma, and orthopedics. She'd pursue her PharmD degree from the University of Cincinnati through the Winkle College of Pharmacy. She went on to pursue her residency in general practice and then critical care in the ICU. She regularly collaborates with doctors and is constantly investing in the next generation of residents and students. Her research with patients on dialysis and breakthrough pain control with trauma patients taking opioid medication has directly impacted the day-to-day life in the hospital. It is such a pleasure to have you. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Phil Pot. Thank you so much for having me. When we begin to think of a pharmacist, we might think of a healthcare professional prescribing medication for maybe mild acne, cold sores, insect bites and hives, or maybe musculoskeletal sprains. Um, Yet few of us are familiar with the world of clinical pharmacy, and you specialize as a pharmacist for the surgery and trauma patients. You're in collaboration with the doctors, you help cover surgical placements, and you constantly are rounding with teams. Could you just give us a glimpse into your distinctive role as a clinical pharmacist? Absolutely. Um, Well, like you mentioned, um, I did additional training um, and postgraduate training through one year general residency and second year critical care residency. Um, And that really is the avenue I chose to prepare myself for the world of clinical pharmacy and more and more that's avenue that is encouraged if you're going to be in a clinical pharmacist role to really equip you for the skills necessary. Um, And the reason for that is because, like you mentioned, we're rounding with teams, we're making medication interventions, um, and my role is really to serve to ensure that patient medications on surgical patients are appropriately dosed, that they're safe, that they're being monitored. Um, if there's anything going on with the patient's injury or clinical presentation that warrants medications, you know, to be held or monitored or adjusted or new medications may be indicated, um, I really collaborate alongside 
the providers to um, maybe recommend optimal medication management, um, recommending new therapies, recommending stopping therapies, dosing, adjusting, um, different medications, et cetera. So it's really focusing on the clinical um, management of medications at the bedside um, and really interpreting patients for their whole clinical picture and helping optimize their pharmacotherapy. It's great to get a window into what that looks like of what a clinical pharmacist does. And we might not be familiar with the educational journey that's involved in that. So you're able to take your pre-pharmacy coursework as an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. And if you take all of the required coursework, you can do that in two years and then uh, go into the four-year doctoral program within the PharmD so there's that unique ability to be placed in the workforce in a relatively short amount of time. Mm -hmm. Could you just describe your educational journey for us and how you sought to take advantage of that unique opportunity? Definitely. Um, so like you mentioned, the PharmD program, it's different at different schools. Um, most colleges, including where I went um, at University, University of Cincinnati College of Pharmacy, is a four-year um, PharmD program, which is a doctoral program. Um, the unique opportunity that, at least at Cincinnati and a couple and multiple other colleges offer, is the potential to do only two years of undergraduate training before going into grad school. So instead of having to get a full undergraduate degree, in addition to pre-pharmacy coursework. Um, some colleges only require you to do the pre-pharmacy coursework, which can be completed in two years, sometimes three, depending on how aggressive you pursue the coursework, but it has the potential for two-year completion. And so you could potentially enter your grad school training um, your third year of college, which um, certainly opens up the opportunity to potentially finish grad school a four-year doctoral program after only six total years of college, um, which was a great op great opportunity for me to finish school um, and get my PharmD that quickly. Um, and then especially since I was doing postgraduate training for two years, um, the total educational experience was a total of eight years as opposed to, you know, having to then do postgraduate training after completing eight years of college. So it was a good opportunity for me in terms of my, my other life goals that I had. Was it ever daunting to you to think of completing your pre-pharmacy coursework and then entering so, so quickly into that field? Or mm -hmm, Definitely, that's a really perceptive question. And it, it actually was, um, I mean, I was 20 years old sitting in sitting in grad school and I'm there with people who are coming back to school, you know, who have maybe been in the workforce for many years, coming back to get their doctorate. I'm there with people who've done full undergrad degrees um, and it's a different mindset. You're really committed to the course, the, the track that you're on at that point. So you have to really know that that's kind of what you want to do when you enter into it because you also don't have an undergrad degree to fall back on. You're like, that's what you're, if you do that opportunity, you're kind of committing to that profession um, from that third year on because um, that will be your only degree so it, it was I, I never doubted that personally I knew that's what I wanted but there was um, a little bit of an adjustment to be entering grad school so early and the demands of grad school so early when most of my other friends in college were still you know they're very good students and studying and working hard but it's just a little bit different level when you get to that that grad school program for sure mm -hmm. and so you pursued 
clinical pharmacy in that aspect of it. So as you're going through that doctoral program, you start out generally in general pharmacy, and then as you progress, you go into specialties. Mm -hmm. Could you describe for us in those following years just some of those specialties within pharmacy? Definitely, definitely. So um, I did critical care training as my specialty. Um, which is all the intensive care units. Um, in my case, it prepared me for my job in trauma and surgery. Um, also emergency medicine. I could you know, be potentially prepared for a job in an ER through critical care training, although there, there are also emergency department residencies where you would specialize in emergency department care. Um, clinical pharmacy has gotten very subspecialized. Um, which is not a bad thing. It's just there's a lot of opportunities for second year programs. If you wanted to specialize, you can do oncology. Um, obviously, there's a lot of opportunity with managing chemotherapy regimens and all the um, complications from that, patient counseling. Um, our oncology pharmacists work very closely you know, with our physicians to help with side effects and dosing and all, the, all of those types of things. Um, and then, you know, internal medicine, if you want to practice, you know, with general medicine pharmacy, general medicine services, um, you can do infectious disease, work with infectious disease teams and do antimicrobial stewardship. Um, there's second year opportunities in psychiatrics. Um, there's opportunities in administration. I know I'm forgetting many, but there's <laughs> there's ambulatory care. So it's not even all in the hospital. You can do an ambulatory care specialty training and practice in a physician's office, helping manage, you know, outpatient, you know, medications for patients and optimizing their chronic medications. Um, so there's there's a lot of opportunity for specialty training. And so if a, a student is maybe even in high school or they're a prospective student and they're interested in pharmacy and eventually maybe pursuing one of those specialties, how do they get good hands-on experience in those years before college and then also in their undergraduate years? It's a great question. Um, a lot of colleges um, may have, especially in undergrad, there may be opportunity to join you know, pre-pharmacy type networking groups or I guess I don't know clubs not the right word or maybe it is but there are <laughs> groups in those undergraduate programs where they may have you know different uh, different educational or speakers or things come um, regarding that profession so I would encourage and see if there's anything like that available there are opportunities sometimes to shadow I was actually some of how I got interested in clinical pharmacy when I was in high school I shadowed a clinical pharmacist on round and I had no idea that was even something that was an option and then all of a sudden I'm rounding with a pharmacist and seeing what they're doing and how they're managing medications and I was really drawn to that so that was that's something that um, you can reach out to see if um, there's pharmacists in an environment that you might be curious in investigating if you could shadow or explore spending some time with that person to to see what it is they actually do um, and then there's oftentimes opportunities, um, at least I, with COVID, I know a lot has changed, but there's possibly opportunities to volunteer. So I also volunteered in a hospital pharmacy when I was in high school. Um, so there may be opportunities as well for, for volunteering and getting just a feel for the pharmacy environment and what the work, type of work that goes on down there. That's such a common theme within the medical field or within healthcare is that idea of shadowing and being able to 
see a profession and not have that responsibility yet, mm -hmm. but to be able to see what their day-to-day -day looks like and what their life looks like. And it's a, a relatively easy process. There's some paperwork involved, but mm -hmm. it's just a great opportunity for students to mm -hmm. get involved and to start seeing just that diversity within the medical field. So mm -hmm, that's, that is really helpful. Um, we've, we've touched on it a little bit before, but you pursued that accelerated program, which requires you to commit early to your career path. Mm -hmm. Were you always drawn to your love for pharmacy or did that develop over time? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I remember becoming, I've, I've always was interested in like medicine. Um, I never had a lot of, my, my, my dad is an engineer and I've always been very science and math oriented, but I just never felt like engineering was really for me, you know, but that type of skill set was appealing to me, not necessarily the work. Um, but when I was, so I was exploring different opportunities in medicine and, you know, thinking about my overall life goals when I was in high school and what might be an, a good, you know, potential career from a flexibility standpoint with things that I knew that I wanted. Um, I, I remember going and seeing a pharmacist talk at a career day and they were talking about Tylenol toxicity and how Tylenol is metabolized, just as like a pharmacy example. And I remember thinking, this is so interesting. <laughs> and so that really kind of precipitated my interest because it was chemistry and it was physiology and biochem um, and just really being curious about that. So that sparked my interest and then definitely through volunteering and exploring um, some of the shadowing opportunities I found through, through my senior year of high school like that is something I'm really interested in so um just knowing kind of for me what my what my goals were what the finding out what the profession could offer and then really it, I think I probably could have enjoyed a lot of things in medicine but um finding out what it is I really am interested in and for me it was some of the the physiology the pharmacology some of the the mechanisms of drug activity and really that stuff really interested me and the science and the application of some of that so for me it really ended up being something I I found I, I had a good passion for and were there so you went to those events and you had those formative experiences where you mm -hmm. were encouraged along that path in that direction were there any mentors in that time that you mm -hmm. really felt like helped encourage you along that path yeah that is a really good question there's there was one pharmacist who I spent a couple of days with who, um, it was so long ago, so I, I do, I, I don't have a ton of details kept in my brain, but I remember her being so encouraging and so interested in her job. Um, and it was only for a day or two, but uh, it just really, that really stuck with me. Um, and so for me, that was someone who I felt, I felt like I was, was a good example to me of someone in the field doing their job and loving it. Um, and that really resonated with me um, at, and really contributed to my interest. And that's so important to just to see those people that you really respect within that field and that can really push you over the edge to end up pursuing mm -hmm. that career path. Mm -hmm. um, as your role as a clinical pharmacist and in that specific role, 
there's a lot of trust that the doctors have in you as you're you're working in collaboration with them and you're um, involved in the patient's story. Everyone has a story, a, mm-hmm. a drama, if you will, as they come through the walls of the hospital to when they leave. Mm-hmm. Could you just give us a window into what that what that looks like, that collaboration with the doctors? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's probably one of my favorite parts of my job, honestly, um, because I, I feel like my training and my area of specialty is is unique and it's a part of what's required for the overall care of the patient you know the physician is the leader of the medical team they're the ones who are have have a lot of the responsibility and everything but we also have a unique opportunity as clinical pharmacists to bring a specific insight into a patient's care um and I'm so grateful to have worked with so many amazing providers um, who are so in, like in collaborative and wanting to work, you know, with people who have different specializations. So I think it's just really great when we have a unique case or even just daily medications. I can just bring up on rounds, hey, this patient's um, renal function changed. You know, I I, rec- I think we need to maybe make some adjustments on some of these medications or. This patient has new culture growth based on the sensitivities or based on this patient's allergy history, whatever this might be, the best antibiotic. And then it's a discussion. It's not, you know, it's a discussion of, oh, what about this? Well, what about that? And we have those dialogues um, and ultimately come to a collaborative decision on how to best manage the patient um, based on, you know, the physician's interpretation of all the diagnostics and the surgical care and my interpretation on you know, the physiology and medication um, specifics. So it's it's very much a collaboration and discussion. And, and a lot of that is due to, um, I think, a healthy environment where there's a lot of respect from in, in, within the team for people with different, level, different areas of, of expertise. So I'm very grateful for that. And it's very rewarding. And And as a pharmacist, you have to be a problem solver, a quick thinker. You're always thinking of the best solution. When you think of a pharmacist and clinical pharmacist, what other characteristics or personality traits do you think is is good for that role? Yeah, I I think it's everyone has kind of a different style, you know, in approach. I can so I can speak to my approach. I I like to try to understand um, like there's a lot of gray in practice. There's you there's not necessarily always a black and white, like yes or no answer. Sometimes there is, there certainly are like those yes or no kind of more definitive cases where it's like, this is the, clearly the right medication. This is clearly not, um, but there's a lot of gray. And so I think um, being able to have some perspective on, okay, maybe this isn't maybe what I was originally thinking would be a good option, but it or not even a good option, originally maybe thinking would be what I would have chosen, but this is what we're doing, and this is a reasonable option. So it's kind of that flexibility, that um, that ability to kind of perceive, okay, what's what? it's just because it's maybe not what I would have originally thought we're going to do, it's still a good option for this patient. And kind of navigating those gray areas, um, it's hard to do that in medicine and especially in pharmacy it's sometimes hard because you want to know what the right medication is at all times but there's not always an answer so kind of being able to live in those waters and then subsequently to be able to recognize oh no this is actually something where 
we can't use this medication for this reason. This is a legitimate reason why we can't, you know, and how to present that information where, you know, it's going to be able to have an impact on the patient's care that needs to happen because of a medication-specific property that you know about. That's your responsibility. That's part of why we're on the team is to bring things like that forward. So kind of the flexibility and able to work with the team and know when to when something is really critical and when it's just, you know, we're collaborating, we're all trying to do the best thing for the patient. And there's maybe a situation where there's a couple things that are going to be all reasonable options. And there's, there's that full range there of at one end, there's a hard and fast, they cannot take this medication. Mm-hmm. And then on mm-hmm. the other end, there's the flexibility of it could be several of these. Right. So it's just like adapting mm-hmm. constantly. Mm-hmm. And how do you know, like if, when you need to say something, that for me is maybe some of the nuance of practice that I found myself kind of developing initially up front and then really fine tuning in the later years of my practice up until now. That's mm-hmm. great to get that perspective though on, on what that requires and, and the personality just around that. Could you walk us through a typical day in your life? You can't adhere too much to a, an, a strict schedule because things come up all the time. That's kind of the nature of practice. But in general, I'll come in and round on trauma, sit in the trauma room and round with the trauma team. Um, and then after trauma I'll rounds, I'll you know go cover some of my peripheral teams um, and follow up any medication issues that came up during rounds. Maybe I'll go talk to a patient. Maybe I'll do a med rec for a patient. Maybe I'll write some pro- my, some consult progress notes and dose adjust a couple medications that needed to be adjusted from rounds. Um, follow up on any drug information questions from rounds. So if the team has asked me to look into something, there's I have to learn every day. That's one of the things I love about my job. I don't I am constantly learning and I don't have all the answers and so you know there's always things for me to look into at the end of rounds. Like what about this? Well, what can I figure out about this? So looking up those things and then. Generally in the afternoons, um, patient care is hopefully taken care of, and then I have afternoon time for um, meetings, for administration type things, so we do a lot of process improvement um, and, you know, administrative type tasks, um, research type activities, writing and publication activities, um, education activities, so if I have trainees with me um, doing some structured teaching going over to the college and giving lectures for different courses if invited. Um, So a lot of different things then kind of happen in the afternoon. And you just touched on it, but the trainees and there's that teaching role as well. And practice of medicine isn't just going on rounds or a surgeon maybe successfully creating a procedure, but a vital aspect of medicine is training that next generation of health Mm -hmm. professionals. And you've done that um, in your role. Could you explain just your role as a teacher to those residents or those first-year medical students and kind of what you seek to do in that? Yeah, so I take, I take students with me on rotation. Um, typically, uh, I take two students at a time, so it's cool because they can work together and then I, can, I have a good dynamic little group we have a little group, the three of us, so it, that's actually, I have two students right now, it's really it's really fun. Um, and a lot of that is the modeling aspect of my job, where I'm modeling on rounds, and then they're going on rounds, so facilitating that their independent practice as they're in their last year of pharmacy school and they're on rotations. Um, so they get that kind of experience rounding, but I'm also still looking over everything, doing a lot of 
the clinical care, but they get to have some of those opportunities. So a lot of teaching is facilitation of opportunity, I think, for students, and then um, giving topic discussions and lectures, um, and then also at the college, going over to the college and you know giving teaching lectures over at the college. And we also have residency trainees, so I may have a resident on rotation for a month with me. And similarly to students, they're pharmacists as a resident. You're a full, you're a licensed pharmacist at that point, so they're practicing much more independently. But it's still kind of the oversight and kind of tr helping facilitate their experience in your special area of specialization so they can get a good surgical experience and be able to care for surgical patients. And that's so important to be invested into that next generation because they mm -hmm. will be the new healthcare professionals. So, Absolutely. Yeah, or yeah. maybe my direct colleagues. I mean, it's always yeah. fun when like a resident <laughs> who I've worked with is now like you know, one of my coworkers. So it's right. just, you know, it, it is, it's a, such an important part of, of the community. In, in your day-to-day -day of hospital life, have you ever faced any ethical dilemmas, maybe from the doctors or from the patients surrounding pharmacology or that aspect of medicine? You know, some of my hardest decisions, I'll just say, have been cases where there's not a clear-cut answer there's a medication with potential risks, but also potential benefits. And how do I, in a situation, how can I best discern the risk versus benefit of that medication? And that's probably the most common kind of dilemma I feel myself in, in certain times with, within my role. You know, this medication, I know the risks, I know the side effects, but I also know what we would want to do if we were to use this medication, the benefit the patient might get. So how do I, how do those things merge, you know? You sometimes feel like you're in between a rock and a hard place where a patient needs something, but maybe they can't have something. So how, where's the middle ground and kind of navigating to find the best option for the patient? Those I think are probably the hardest decisions um, where there's no good answer, but you ultimately have to make a decision um, alongside the medical team, obviously, but you know, Sometimes the phys a physician will say, well, I want to know what you think because you know, every you know the most about this drug. So, you know, you have to kind of formulate your thoughts and, and those, those can be challenging, but, um, but those are the cases where you really learn, I think, and really have to think critically, talk to the patient, know about, really look into medication, you know, pharmacology, physiology, try to make the best decision possible and ultimately do the best you can for that patient. That can be really challenging to mm -hmm. just to bridge that gap. Yeah. And as you're thinking about the patient and as you're thinking about um, the specifics of, of what they need, everyone's different f with how they might respond to a certain drug. Mm -hmm. Could you just describe that process a little bit of how do you select the most effective drug for a patient? Sure. Um, we like, we, we like to encourage as much as possible evidence-based medicine, so obviously using drugs where there's data for use within certain populations. Um, sometimes there's, and then obviously also guidelines can dictate, you know, treatment plans. Um, so looking at guidelines, looking at primary literature um, to see what is recommended for treatment of these different, you know, whatever it is that you're treating. Um, that's always the backbone of what we do. And then from a patient-specific standpoint, looking at um, what are the patient-specific factors that would maybe prompt us to use one medication or another. Um, 
you know, depending on the different blood thinners, is there reasons we would want to use one blood thinner rather than another based upon this patient's renal function or this patient's weight or this patient's age? Is there a reason we would use one antibiotic or another for based on where the infection is located or what organism is growing? So it's, it's using a combination of evidence in terms of what is recommended in the literature and the guidelines and in, um, in primary literature, and then subsequently, what are we actually managing in this specific patient, and how do those two things intersect? But mm-hmm. it can sometimes be a mystery of like what exactly is going on there. Mm-hmm. What is going on physiologically in the body, generally, when we take a drug? There's kind of two main aspects of drug pharmacology. One, just for broad purposes, the first is called pharmacokinetics, and that's kind of this, that's, the, that's describing what is happening to the drug as it progresses through the body. So you have, if it's an oral medication, for example, you have absorption, you have distribution, you have metabolism, and then you have elimination of drugs. So the drug is absorbed, it distributes throughout the body, it's metabolized by the body, and then it's eliminated from the body. Obviously, if it's an IV medication, there's no absorption, but there's still distribution, metabolism, elimination. Um, And then there's what's called pharmacodynamics. So what effect is the drug having? What is the physiologic effect that the drug is then having upon the body? And that can be, um, you know, related to receptor targeting. So is the drug working on a receptor in the body to exert some sort of pharmacologic effect? You know, are you inhibiting a protein? Are you blocking a receptor? Um, are you opening a receptor, you know, and causing, you know, cellular changes that lead to your, your result from that medication? Is it working on another drug? You know, are you giving an anecdote or an antibody to neutralize something or to affect the immune system? Um, are you targeting a bacteria? Is it an antibiotic that's working on a bacteria that's trying to target certain parts of a bacteria? So that's called the pharmacodynamics aspect where the drug is then exerting its effect. And depending on the drug and what it's being used for, that could, that's very specific then to what that therapy is. But all drugs have a pharmacokinetic profile where they're being moved throughout the body in their process of you know, being processed by the body. And then they have a pharmacodynamic effect, which is what is their effect on the body and what they're being used for. That's absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. Just to, to go into the specifics of that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, Going in, so we've, we've transitioned a little bit into the technical side of things. Um, you've done a lot of research. That's another way to directly impact that day-to-day hospital life. Through patient care is one way, and then through research. And you've been involved in both uh, retrospective and prospective studies. For those of us who don't know, what, what's the main difference between those two research approaches? Sure, yeah, it's really a matter of are we going to be Retrospective is more, am I, I'm going to look back and pull data that's already available to me, right? It's maybe from a database that's being maintained. Um, maybe it's from patient charts where you pull patient charts who maybe would be able to, would contain data that you're curious about, depending on what your research question is. And you would mine that data. You would collect that data from those resources and then you would analyze it to see if, depending on what that data is or what your research question is, you would look at that historic data and try to look for things like associations. It's hard to establish you know, causes, essentially, from retrospective studies, but you can look and see, did this lead to, is this associated with this? What happened to patients who had this happen to them? And it's more, you know, you can get some of those conclusions. 
versus prospective research is, okay, I want to know this question. I want to know the answer to this question. And the best way to study it is to just make a trial that is going to help me best answer this question in the cleanest way possible. So the best data is generally randomized control trials or, you know, trials where you're setting up a study to find an outcome, find an inter if the intervention has an effect um, without the limitations that retrospective data has. So prospective studies are, are a lot harder um, and a lot more time consuming, a lot more resource consuming. Um, so it just depends on what you're looking to do. Sometimes it has to be prospective and some, um, sometimes retrospective data can be really you know, insightful as well, um, depending on the resources available to you and what you're looking to find. Because um, ideally you do prospective study for everything, but you just can't do that, right? So the retrospective data definitely has a role. And so it's a good option. Both of them offer, offer something and prospective is maybe a little more robust, but um, they're both options. It could, it could definitely be a, a lot more involved with the prospective side. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. your, so you're, you did a retrospective study and it dealt with pain control with trauma patients taking opioid medication. Just generally, was there anything interesting that you'd like to touch on? Sure. We, um, yeah, we ended up, you know, trying to optimize our pain protocol for trauma patients to kind of minimize opioid use if possible, knowing we still utilize opioids for severe pain. Um, and, and we were able, we found we were able to use more what we call multimodal agents. It's non-opioid therapies that are scheduled around the clock to kind of provide baseline pain relief and then just give breakthrough opioid therapy on top of it. And we found that that approach reduced um, overall use of, of opioids, which is which is always a good thing, you know, minimizing opioid use. Um, it was interesting, we found maybe increased use of a couple other medications that would also require close monitoring. Um, so it was just, it was good for us to find that and to be aware we need to make sure we're monitoring all these other things that we're now prescribing. Um, but it was great to see that the intervention that we made, that's an example of a retrospective study having Giving, giving a good result where we had made an intervention and we were able to look back at the data for patients who had received that intervention compared to prior and find that you know it had a significant effect. So that was encouraging to us in our clinical practice and our day-to-day -day <laughs> for, sure. for patient care to say, okay, what we're doing has actually done something good. And so you know, we feel confident at this point in time you know, knowing that we're doing the best that we can for our patients. That's great. And you've also done prospective research as well. Could you explain that study a little bit for us? Like, what did you, what'd you learn in that? <laughs> definitely. So that study was definitely more involved. It was a prospective study. Yeah. Um, took several years. I only enrolled 10 patients, but it was, it was a small, what we call pharmacokinetic study, where um, I got, I enrolled patients who were receiving continuous renal replacement therapy, which is a type of continuous dialysis used in critically ill patients. Um, and if patients were receiving cefepime while on CRRT, cefepime is an antibiotic for severe infections. Um, I, I approached and consented those patients to be enrolled in, in my study where we would just collect drug levels. We didn't do anything with their care. It was just drug collecting blood, blood draws um, to measure the drug levels. Um, since they're not, those levels aren't readily available clinically, it was a research lab. 
And we were able then to get a lot of serum assays collected to then model and do a lot of um, analyses on the things we talked about earlier, you know, pharmacokinetics, you know, how is this drug being cleared by the body and managed by the body, especially in the setting of CRRT, which is removing the drug. So how well is the drug being removed and what effect is, are all these aspects of these patients having on the drug, you know, moving throughout the body and then subsequently the pharmacodynamics, what are, are we reaching our target levels based upon what we know is needed for cefepime to have good activity? So basically using that data to say what is the best dosing regimen for us to be using in these patients based on the serum levels that we were able to check. And so obviously you've, you've enjoyed research, you've fallen in love with it a little <laughs> bit, you've done the retrospective, you've done the prospective as well. How did you first fall in love with research? I think for me at least, and I, I've noticed this with some of my trainees who I've precepted on research projects, I think in my experience, research for, for me has been an acquired passion where I was, maybe the first research project I did as a student, I didn't love research. I'm like, I'm mining charts, looking for all this data to put into Excel. I don't know why. I, I, I'm interested in this, but I'm not like passionate about this. But then as I've gotten in my practice, you know, research is really answering a question, right? I have a question at the bedside. I, you know, we talked earlier about gray areas or maybe not knowing how, what the best option is for patients. There's a lot of unanswered questions in medicine. So research gives us the opportunity to find those answers. And so that for me really has where my passions kind of grown. You know, I'm at the bedside. I don't know the answer. There's maybe no data to, for, for this specific question to help guide me. So let's go find out, you know, let me, let's do a research project. Let's investigate. Let's see what data is available or what data we can find. And then you see the answer, the question kind of get answered and it helps then have the practical result of improving patient care, which is the ultimate goal. So it's really rewarding, I think, to undergo that process, knowing that it's ultimately going to help optimize outcomes. And you have to remember that end process because sometimes mm -hmm looking through charts in Epic and finding all the data and putting it in RedCap or Excel, and then <laughs> it can seem a little mundane at times, yes. but you just have to remember that end, end result, and that can be some pretty incredible breakthroughs. And Definitely. Like you're saying, it, it directly mm -hmm. impacts day-to-day, -day though, because you can implement those new and improved strategies that you find and mm -hmm. put them directly into practice. So. Yes, it's, it's, it's really rewarding when you get to speak more confidently in those areas and know the patients are going to benefit. It's, it, it always makes it worth it. Within the world of pharmacy, how do you stay up to date on newly released drugs or recent drug changes? There's just, it's always <laughs> developing and there's, there's so much within it. So, Oh my gosh. I... There's no way to stay up to date on all of it. There just isn't. It's like impossible. Um, but within my area of practice, which is the most relevant for me to stay up to date on a regular basis, um, there are a couple of opportunities that you can sign up for, like for example, e-table of contents. So journals that publish research and you know literature that's regularly impactful to my day-to-day -day, you can sign up to receive an automatic email from them that has their table of contents every time a new journal comes out so i've subscribed to and it's free so i subscribe to some journal e-talks and 
you know, multiple times a month, I get different emails from all these different journals as their new issues come out. And I may not even have to pull any articles, but I can at least skim the table of contents and see, oh, something like, is there anything relevant to my practice, right? Is there anything that I need to actually go and read this data? So that's one way. Um, taking students and trainees is huge because they're coming out of school and they're oftentimes getting just, they just finished learning all the most updated things. And so in they're full of questions and, you know, pers you know, they're fresh from their training. So, um, you know, I learn, I sometimes hear from students in areas where I'm not specifically practicing in depth, like you know, there's a new diabetes medication we're using outpatient. Well, I don't practice outpatient, but that's like, you know, you learn things like that through, through trainees. It, definitely having trainees is good. And, um, you know, there's FDA med watches and there's different things. And we'll, you know, our administration and our group, our pharmacy group is all collaborative with sharing and dialoguing about things that we find as well. So it's good to have a network. It's good to stay in touch with professional organizations that sometimes put things out and then um, have kind of your finger on the pulse of what's being published in your areas of expertise. That's really good advice. And sometimes you do need to stay within what's directly ahead of me and what, come, what do I come in contact with mm -hmm. on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. Sometimes bringing it out full scale can be a little daunting and maybe not yes. as relevant, but that's really important too to look to those journals or to just mm -hmm. that collaboration as well. Just mm -hmm. being in constant collaboration with others and that's really helpful. Absolutely. Um, what do you see in the world of pharmacy that excites you maybe in the next couple of years or even now? What What is exciting within that world? Uh, yeah, I think um, there's a lot of opportunity um, within pharmacy. We aren't, we don't have prescribing authority which is probably one of the one of the biggest aspects like that our practice that our profession maybe doesn't have that other practitioners would have um, there are aspects there are areas in pharmacy that are potentially going to be able to do some more prescribing like activities so that might be interesting and that's all happening you know within the legislatures and that's a that's that's on the horizon and I don't know how or the, the logistics of how that will pan out but there may be growth in that area I'm not sure um, there's things potentially in the works but I really think the ability for um, for clinical pharmacy to continue to grow and expand it's been a growing profession for for a while um, and the ability for us to continue to integrate more and more at the bedside for pharmacists to get involved you know in specialty pharmacies as an outpatient to do medication therapy reconciliations as an outpatient there's different opportunities um, across the board of pharmacy or there's maybe clinical clinical avenues coming available and new things coming available um, that I think is going to be really cool to see kind of how our profession is expanding and integrating more and more into different aspects of healthcare. I know you just touched on it a little bit with the prescribing aspect, but just on the flip side, do you see any pressing issues that you believe need to be addressed just going forward? Sure. It's an interesting, um, there's some interesting aspects for sure. Um, I definitely think the landscape has changed a little bit because there were a lot of pharmacy schools that have opened up. Um, you know, when I was applying to pharmacy school, it was a lot, there was a lot less pharmacy colleges. And so it was a little, it was a lot more competitive. Not to say you don't still have to be qualified or it doesn't still have that competitiveness, but there's been a lot of pharmacy schools. So I think, 
I think our profession is going to have to is going to be having to navigate some of that having more people entering into the field which is not a bad thing with the increased opportunities um it's just a matter of kind of making sure that we're careful with what is the need and what is the what are we how many people are going into the environment of pharmacy and then what is the actual need and i mean there is a need right now still especially in asp in areas like retail um, there's still a big need, but I think it's going to be interesting to see as we expand and as the pharmacy colleges grow, what um, what that will end up looking like. Are there any common misconceptions within the world of pharmacy, both in your specific avenue of clinical pharmacy and then pharmacy in general that you think needs to be addressed? I think just knowing that we're there and there's there should be a pharmacist looking at your medications especially if you're in the hospital and um they were always available as as a resource to patients um not maybe a misconception but just something that yeah something to bring something to, to be aware that, of yeah. yeah that we exist right <laughs> and you're directly involved in right. the team and the process and the patient's experience right we're taking care of people and doing doing our thing with with managing drug therapy as best we can what about, just thinking of some other topics, um, outside of the hospital and outside of the practice of medicine, what brings you joy? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, I, I think it's, I think for me it's really relationship driven, you know, time with my husband, time with my son, you know, family time and intentionality. Um, and building into relationships with different friends um, and having intentional relationships, you know, where you're, you're living life together honestly and authentically. Um, investment in my faith is, is crucial for, for me personally in my life. Um, that's foundational for, for everything I do. So, um, and then, I'll, and then in, in addition to that, really just having, having intentional and committed, you know, relationships with other people. Um, also being outdoors and hiking and running and when I can make it happen with my 14 month old son, you know, <laughs> as much as I can, having those moments of, of just enjoying, you know, being outside and being active. I find that to be such an important element is that idea of being outside and, and exercising as well. And even in college and when things can get very busy, just having mm -hmm. that be something that is a constant and that mm -hmm. you you're exercising and you're feeling good and then you're more focused in the workplace or academics or things like that. Definitely. Um, yeah, it's important to have like all aspects of your life kind of, you have to build into, you have to maintain that, you know, commitment to maintaining those things. And yeah, and that intentionality about relationships too. And mm -hmm. it's not just the number of people that you know, but sometimes the smaller amount, but mm -hmm. the more genuine relationships and mm -hmm. being intentional with that time as well. There's mm -hmm. always time. You just have to find it. It is. Yeah. It's, it's there. Sometimes <laughs> you have to work for it, but you know, it's always worth it when you can, when you can make those moments happen. And what about non-negotiables? Are there things in your life that you can't do without? That's just a key part of mm -hmm. the day to day or even mm -hmm. just generally. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's time with my family, you know, it's, it's having moments, even just throughout the day where I can kind of have a moment just to myself, even just for a minute or two, just to sort of reflect or, you know, catch my breath. Um, and, um, I think, 
I think it non-negotiables not in a rigid way because there are seasons of life that are hard there are seasons of life that are sacrificial there are seasons of life where things have to give and in medicine and in pharmacy especially the training is so intense um uh you just have to sometimes make some of those sacrifices where you you're going through a season of sacrifice um but it's it's so you can walk the road and then i but the important thing i found is you know you you get through those seasons and, and there's a lot of grace and support and people who love you. But um, at the end of that road, it's important to be mindful of, okay, well, that road is, has passed. I've completed this such and such training or whatever the season has been. So how do I, how do I you know, reprioritize those things? So it's, it's having that intentionality like we were talking about with making sure that your priorities are still able to be priorities, even if there's going to be seasons where, you know, you can't be 100% everything all the time. It's, it's how do you find those, how do you make sure that those things don't fall off your radar and you, you don't get sucked in too deep? That's such a good reminder is that it, those non-negotiables can come in seasons and mm-hmm. there are certain seasons that you have that list of priorities and things that you can't budge on, but it isn't something meant to be rigid throughout. Mm-hmm. There's, mm-hmm. there's fluctuation as you go into those different roads and seasons and mm-hmm. being aware of that is really insightful. Mm-hmm. What about encouragement that you would give to aspiring healthcare professionals for people who are just beginning to fall in love with the practice of medicine and mm-hmm. who are starting on that journey? What encouragement would you give to them? Uh, I just, I'm excited for, for you guys. It's so rewarding. You know, it, it really is. It's a, it's hard. It's full of challenge. Um, but there's so much reward. And I just, I would just say that if you feel like this is the road you're supposed to walk, then, you know, don't let the seasons that are challenging get you down. It's okay to ask for support and help lean into your mentors. Um, but the reward is great. So, um, it's, it's, there's challenges, there's challenges for sure, um, but it's so rewarding. So I'm just excited for, for you guys on your journey. And what about practical steps? You've talked about it before with shadowing and mentorship and mm-hmm. that teaching role uh, a little bit before, but any other practical steps that an aspiring pharmacologist could take in their undergraduate years? Sure. Well. If you're really interested in pharmacy, um, like you, you're fairly committed to doing it, um, you can look into um, working as a pharmacy technician to get some actual work experience. Um, the, the trouble with that is there's certifications that are required for that. Um, it used to not be the case. You could get a job as a technician you know, without a formal certification. There's different levels of certification, so I, I can't speak super fluently to that um, since I don't directly work with technicians on a day-to-day. I've kind of lost touch with some of that, but I would encourage you to look into that. If you were looking to get a job in a pharmacy, there are opportunities there. Um, and if you were to start pharmacy school, there are opportunities with internships where you would be able to get jobs with your, you know, being in the PharmD program. So um, that's another opportunity that if you're more serious about it, um, would give you some great experience and exposure as well. And then um, any additional advice, any, any closing thoughts on just those beginning their journey? Uh, I would just in- appreciate, you know, the opportunities that are out there to, to really learn about the field. 
Um, and just think about what, what it, not necessarily the job itself, but what is it about the job that you're drawn to, you know? It's not just, oh, I want to be a pharmacist. It's, well, I'm really interested in learning about these types of things, you know? And I feel like sometimes it's, well, what's the right job for me? And that's a great question to ask. That's an important question to ask. Um, but I've just found for me some of those more intangible things, like the ability to collaborate with other healthcare professionals, the ability to impact patient care, the ability to do research and teaching. That's part of my job, and those are the, I love being a pharmacist, but it's really because I have those opportunities. The ability to do critical thinking and you know, make complex clinical decisions. Those are, what are the more like foundational aspects of that interest? So um, for me, that's been helpful in my career to think through kind of what is really important to me about this job. Um, so that, that can be helpful as well as you're beginning your journey to really be thinking about what's important and what interests you about the practice and the profession um, to help kind of help you kind of continue to develop that passion. And you have to have almost that childlike wonder mm -hmm. as you're coming in and that oh, curiosity yes. and yes. you have to be you have to be driven mm -hmm. by the love for it not just oh this is an occupation that I'm fulfilling but right. it has to be part of you too like like you and your love for chemistry and like combining chemistry and physiology and mm -hmm. like I think pharmacy is right for me and mm -hmm. there's that process of like marrying who you are with right. also like your curiosities and your loves and mm -hmm. it takes time but it's a really important process absolutely absolutely I think that passion is so critical I mean because it's so it's an intense training I mean in any avenue you take in medicine is it's challenging but so worth it especially when you have that interest driving you thank you oh, for absolutely for sharing and for coming on the podcast thank you so much Jonathan it's my pleasure to be here I'm I really enjoyed our conversation Thank you for tuning into this episode of Voices from Healthcare. This podcast seeks to give practical advice to aspiring healthcare professionals and encourage those within the healthcare field. If you appreciate the message and mission of this podcast, leave a rating and review on the platform you are listening to and make sure to follow the podcast so that you do not miss out on future episodes. It really does help spread the word within the podcasting world. Tune in on October 11th as I gain a first-hand perspective to the world of orthopedics. We'll delve into the importance of advocating for same-day surgery and the value of entering medicine from a line of predecessors. I'll understand the distinctive landscape of bones as well as understand relocation of bone density. I'll learn about his philosophy of care and even touch on the cement used for setting knee or shoulder replacements. Feel free to send me professions you want me to interview, questions you have, or neat stories you want to share with me. You can email me at voicesfromhealthcare at gmail.com. Although this podcast seeks to be informative, information discussed cannot be taken in place of medical advice.